you sort of think about all the categories of different professional services or different, um, you know, specific domains, I think they're going to be models that are good at all of them. Uh, and I think that that sort of, you know, right now, uh, LLMs, tra- uh, you know, pre-trained on the internet and aligned on sort of general problem solving skills. I think that the, the next layer is then getting into solving every single domain um, really in society. Thank you, Adam, so much for joining us today. Um, first, let's just t- tell us about your prior work experiences, why you chose those positions, and what you're most proud of, and how they led to your current work. Yeah, sure. So uh, I studied computer science at the University of Tennessee, and uh, while I was there, I did research at Oak Ridge National Laboratory for the remote data analysis and visualization group. So we sort of did the post-processing that came out of the uh, supercomputer group there at Oak Ridge. Um, immediately after school, uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to be introduced to some co-founders, and we um, built a, an application that uh, did natural language understanding of news. Um, and so that was, you know, pre kind of word devec, like really, uh, it was much more like bag of words, term frequency and first document frequency kind of um, similarity in between news items. And we built a mobile application that sort of um, was a news aggregator. This is like in the very shortly after Google Reader kind of days. And so was really interested in, in sort of understanding content, um, you know, the, the kind of intersection of machines and, and news. Um, so I, I started school initially as a journalism major and then transitioned into computer science. And so that sort of like combination of like how people get information and what information means has always been really interesting to me. Um, after that, I mean, continued kind of in startup space, um, did some work uh, for a kind of gig economy company called Bellhops, where I was the CTO and really built the entire uh, team that uh, thought about labor and capacity. And that was sort of my first brush with um, sort of workforce management and the way that technology can impact the the kind of work that we do and really the future of labor as we you know digitize further. And so that was a really interesting um kind of exposure to other consumer uh, technology companies as well as two-sided marketplaces. And I really enjoyed uh, that exposure and then um, did some other uh, kind of startup things and then uh, ended up at Meta for a little while where I also worked on the news team. And so got to continue to kind of flex some of that uh, natural language uh, background as it related to news. Um, And uh, then from there, I was uh, contacted by our CTO here at Invisible um, who I'd worked with at a a previous company and, and really enjoyed the the collegial nature of the engineering teams that he set up. And so uh, where I work now in Visible uh, is a company that sort of combines three things. We do uh, business process consulting. So basically understanding you know, really large enterprises, the kinds of business processes that they operate on. Uh, we have a, a globally distributed workforce of thousands of people. And so that really matched with my background in terms of understanding labor and capacity and how that kind of fits into the equation. And then we also, uh, we do automation and AI enablement. And so what that looks like for us is sort of a uh, combination of understanding a, a business process for an enterprise, uh, whether that might be, you know, a document workflow for a bank or sort of a, um, you know, any of the myriad of different kind of relatively manual processes that insurance or healthcare kind of companies need to need to work through. Um, and we solve those problems for them with a combination of our, our human workforce, uh, sort of traditional automation solutions, uh, as well as AI models. And now that AI models are becoming a lot more powerful, we're seeing that that intersection and combination of things um, is really sticking in ways that are uh, really exciting. And so it gives me an exposure pretty broadly across industries for different business problems. Um, we, we get to play with models that are doing really exciting things. And so um, that's that's kind of my gig. That's um, you, you mentioned your experience in news. Um, that was very sim- similar, at least interest to me um, with, so I was, I was focused on uh, multimodal analysis using deep learning. Uh, and one of the, my research projects were 
finding cross-cultural differences um, between, let's say, how a news station in India versus the United States might cover COVID. And um, using basically um, like word embeddings and uh, uh, vision embeddings, you finding a shared space for that, and then using that to find sort of similar um, parts or portions of a news coverage. Like curious to hear about, you know, when you were working in on so news um, news events, like what were some like really interesting problems that you were you're working on or solving, um, and some key lessons you got from that experience? Yeah, so this was several years ago, and so this is you know pre uh, kind of I mean e even then it was like before Word Devec uh, sort of came out, and so we were um, primarily we were doing named entity uh, um, yeah. recognition across items, and then sort of understanding the frequencies of those named entities, and well as well as their prominence. Um, and so effectively building, you know, um, matrices and databases of uh, here is a particular article from a different source uh, and then uh, monitoring user behavior in order to understand, um, you know, what is the kind of um, news that this person reads? Uh, and then are there other news sources that, you know, publish things that are related to that? Or, um, you know, are there different sort of uh, combinations of entities that, you know, we start to, to see patterns within? Yeah, and so I think this is this is also interesting. This idea of, you know, we had, we had like problems like named entity recognition and NLP that I think were more important in data pipelines prior to a lot of the large language model um, you, advances. So they're so important. But I think I remember you know when, when Bert came out, like the the biggest thing I was using it, to, it for were named entity recognition in sort of financial application pipelines, healthcare pipelines. Um, like these kind of traditions, like how do you think about using these new technologies, like large language models, in some of these more classical data pipelines, like or data more classical issues or problems, like named entity recognition? Like, do you think those types of traditional ways of, of solving problems are still relevant just with new, new issues, or are, is this an entirely new data pipeline that, that's coming through? Yeah, I mean, so uh, at Invisible, we think about everything from the, the end user experience first. And so um, we have a, a, a background, you know, with our, our global workforce, we've been around for about eight years. And so uh, a lot of times we were uh, taking on problems that companies would traditionally outsource and thinking about how to decompose those problems into smaller and smaller pieces. And so we've built a platform that effectively models a business process as a directed graph, similar to like the way you would think about like an airflow job or something like that. And so uh, we have a no code platform internally that we've developed where we sit down with a business stakeholder and we say, you know, describe this process for us. And we sort of sketch out, you know, here are the individual steps. These are sort of the conditions. And we try to back into, you know, what is this business process and what are kind of the decision points across that. And five years ago, a lot of times that would be us decomposing that business process into individual steps that could be accomplished by a human from our workforce and so we've built a, a workforce management and kind of skills uh, matrix uh, to be able to understand across our workforce you know if this is something where we're doing medical transcription this part of the process needs to go to the working group that has medical transcription experience or certification or or whatever the appropriate kind of skill would be and so now what we're seeing is because we're already sort of built into the dna of the company is this idea of being able to decompose problems into those directed graphs of steps um, you know, we're really attuned to uh, also, you know, if we can make those smaller and smaller pieces, then they become things that are really easily digestible by the model. And so um, we really try to build a framework and a foundation that's based on that understanding of the 
underlying process that's going to be executed and then look for opportunities where a model might be a good fit or you know you might be able to have oversight of a human workforce um, from outputs that are coming out of a model and so we're um, really in a consultative kind of uh, engagement in a lot of these uh, interactions with our clients got it uh, it's funny um, we you for my, my research at Stanford um, you know for our owners models we use so directed uh, acyclic graphs to explain how our data pipelines work as well and it's funny because when you're in algorithms class you're kind of like why are all these computer scientists so obsessed with these graphs and they have all these yeah. algorithms just to traverse them and you have to memorize them uh and it's like so annoying and then you, you get in the real world it's like oh like that was why it's because like almost every workflow almost every problem can be solved if you just you know convert it into a graph problem um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and so like, I mean, just to kind of add a little bit more information about our, our platform overall, like, because each one of those nodes can be reused across processes, we have thousands of different uh, steps that we've created for this uh, platform. And so in some cases, those steps might be an automation or an integration, like go fetch data from Salesforce, and then load it into a process that's going to make a decision in terms of like routing it into other parts of that process. Um, and, you know, again, like a lot of that is set up around the idea of being able to route it to uh, to people, but as models become more and more prevalent, we're we're vendor agnostic across any commercially available model, and so we've built up a library of different models that could be used. And then we think about this more as a a configuration problem of designing a process that might you know use models at different stages of that, rather than sort of solving an end to end problem just with a model. We think about the interplay of models with, you know, the data problem that our customers bring to us. Um, and since we're used to doing quality assurance on top of, you know, human work, we're also really attuned to sort of thinking about is the data that's coming out of this process actually meeting our customers' expectation and we have frameworks for how we think about evaluating that that look a lot more like management practices than maybe things that would happen in a pure data science uh, kind of um, problem space. Got it, got it. Um, so, yes, definitely want to dive into uh, your work at Invisible Technologies. But first, let's take a step back. You know, we kind of brief, briefly went over your background. Um, and, you know, you know, we start every event from our 200-person our summits to, you know, 20-person discussion group with an icebreaker just to get to know people sure. on a personal level. Um, so notice, I think you, you mentioned uh, some experience in, in being a private pilot, I guess. Yeah. Or, you know, just how do you, how does, from your perspective, how does being a private pilot influencer reflect how your your approach to technology and development or team management maybe it's just something you do for fun and you don't think about the crossovers at all but would be curious to hear a little bit about your passion there yeah i mean so i i love flying and i really enjoyed it as a uh you know a, a new activity um you know I, I learned during covid and so it was a great kind of uh, way to, to get out of being really cooped up uh during that time but um i think you know uh doing things well you know that are are fast paced and that require a high degree of you know safety uh, i think it was a really interesting kind of concept to think through so like um i really enjoyed kind of trying to think through the, the faa produces tons of materials um that tell you about you know what's going on in an airport what are the practices that you need to follow whenever you come to this airport what are the rules and regulations there and kind of thinking through there are tens of thousands of planes in this planes in the sky at any point in time and they need to get to places in bad weather. Uh, they need to do so safely. And we have a great track record in the US uh, for being able to do that. And so thinking about um, you know, checklists and processes and kind of like what does good look like in terms of doing, doing something the same way over and over again. And so I, I kind of use that metaphor when we talk about our software development lifecycle within the engineering team here at Invisible. So like I, um, 
talk about, you know, you, you go into land a plane and you do the same actions over and over again. Like there's a very specific speed that you need to be at. There's a very specific configuration that the plane needs to be in. Um, and if you do those to the point that, you know, that muscle memory, it really reduces your cognitive overhead. And you also like you touch down at the same spot every single time. And so um, I think that that kind of understanding of thinking about rigorous process, I think uh, prior to that, um, you know, uh, having checklists and having sort of templates for things felt very bureaucratic, you know, from somebody coming from a startup background. And so I think that for me, it, it taught me a lot about the value of structure uh, and the value of sort of like setting up processes and templates for people to be able to follow. Um, you know, obviously there's a difference between trying to land a plane and trying to, you know, like ship a new feature. But I think it, that that perspective was really interesting to me. So this concept of, um, maybe you've heard of the book Checklist Manifesto oh, yeah. by Tulgoon. And so you know, that took the world by storm. And at first when I heard that book, I was like, you know, what's the big deal? It seems like this person is just talking about you know, creating a checklist. Um, yeah. I, I do that all the time. But uh, I think it's the force behind it of uh, when you're doing something very risky or has potential downsides, um, a lot of people who take those risks, it's not that they are um, oblivious to those risks or they don't feel the fear from those risks. It's that they know that if they create a rigorous and sort of detailed checklist of things to account for, that you can actually manage that downside in a way uh, that makes it you know, in exponentially safer to take those, to do those actions and um, to manage kind of the downside. Um, but like, you know, curious, like why even get into flying in the first place? Like what was the, you could have done a lot of things. You could have done like cooking, you could have done selling. Like why, uh, why this hobby? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guess, you know, what, why do things bring us joy? Um, you know, I, I think that it, it's, it was just something that um, I uh, I'd had some exposure to. Like, uh, I, had, I had some friends that were glider pilots, and I always thought that was really cool. And so, um, you, you know, it was just, I, I think that the idea of um, learning something that's challenging, that's outside of, you know, what my day-to-day -day might be, I think was just really in, enjoyable. And, I you know, also with that, like, it, I've been able to take some trips to places and uh, that I think have been really, uh, really fun as, as well as, you know, I've made some really great friends uh, in the flying community. And I think that um, pilots, they love to talk about being pilots. And so it's a kind of a, a fun thing anytime that you bump into anybody that has that kind of background. Well, yeah, um, great. So uh, switching gears here, uh, moving into kind of discussion on AI, maybe to set the ground uh, groundwork, can you share any success stories or use cases at Invisible? And what were the critical factors contributing to to their success? Yeah, so I mean, as I mentioned, like, you know, we think about everything as a business process. And so we think about AI as a capability within those processes. And so um, one of the recent projects that we worked on was sort of a catalog management uh, problem. So we were uh, working with uh, one of the largest brick and mortar retailers in the US, uh, and they have a, a product catalog of 1.2 billion products. Um, and the, that product information, you know, comes in from tens of thousands of different vendors, um, but they need a, you know, really well-defined structure for those uh, products. And so you could think of a wristwatch that might be for sale in a brick and mortar, um, you know, uh, store has 200 different attributes about it. And so um, taking uh, a fact sheet uh, that's a PDF uh, from, you know, a vendor and getting that into your point of sale system in a way that helps you to run inventory, that helps you to sell online in addition to in-store and, and kind of understand, you know, the uh, the different qualities that uh, a, a buyer might care about is really important for them to be able to get the sale. Like, I think we've, you know, I've definitely experienced where you log into a website and you sort of, you click uh, the, the black box and think you're going to see a picture of a black t-shirt and instead you see a white t-shirt. And so there's 
a lot that kind of goes into that merchandising experience of uh, taking facts about different products and getting them into the format and structure that are appropriate. And when you're doing it, the kind of scale that I was, you know, talking about for this retailer, it's a massive undertaking. And so um, that was a project that we took on actually several years ago that we had been running as a really mechanized um, sort of combination of automation as well as humans that were going through and reading and sort of doing data entry and, and data management tasks. Uh, and instead, we, you know, started to see, hey, these large language models are really good at being able to pull different facts, um, but there are different challenges around certain product categories, uh, either you know the data that was coming from different vendors that we had access to or the specific attributes that we needed to pull out. There are different levels of success across those different attributes. And so um, we designed a process that did a, a combination of humans and AI in order to be able to, to solve that. And then um, you know, came up with several different methods to be able to compare the outputs of those uh, two different things in order to build our confidence across whether it was the data source or the vendor category in order to then be able to replace a lot of that data entry task for categorical information or sort of, um, you know, dimension attributes or things like that across different products. So maybe walk us through, we've outlined the problem. Yeah. Um, maybe walk us through, how do you go about chunking that larger problem into like three key areas that need to be addressed and then we'll, let's start from there and then we'll talk about how because as a technical leader you're also thinking at a higher level of how to organize teams so sure. let's just first let's first talk about the problem and how you break that down to, to yeah. a solution yeah absolutely so i mean you know with with uh with us anytime that we're you know sitting down and talking to a customer like we we consult with them a lot in order to really try to understand like what are their business kpis like what is the problem that they're trying to solve and we want to make sure that you know like we're not just doing something to to spec but we're actually going to you know provide value for them whenever we uh we deliver data back to them and as well as you know we want to understand you know what systems are we integrating with like where are we pulling data from sort of where where is where is this data coming from when it gets to you where is it going to go whenever it comes back from us and really making sure that we understand how we fit into that process uh and then from there you know we have a, a several different teams across the company that sort of then sit down with clients, whether it's their engineering team or their product teams, or even, you know, a lot of times their operations teams to understand, um, you know, how how is this currently being solved? You know, like, is this something where they're using an internal team? Is this something where the data is just not there at all? Is it a new initiative? And like really trying to build context so that that way as we, you know, try to design a solution for them, uh, we're able to, there's obviously, you know, contract negotiation that happens within any business in order to make sure that we understand the scope of work. Um, and then from there, you know, like we will uh, build out the underlying business process that, you know, we've agreed to within our platforms, again, as a directed graph of individual steps. Um, and a lot of times we'll start sort of at sketching at a high level. And for us, um, you know, especially when we're establishing a new data set or something that doesn't exist yet, a lot of times we'll lean into sort of writing a standard operating procedure and then having a human workforce that works over it. And then that'll allow us to build an initial data set that we can then you know, start trying different techniques against in terms of whether it's different models or different prompts or different sort of approaches in terms of trying to solve the creation of that. But a lot of times what we're doing is effectively trying to take something that is currently messy and complex that needs to be executed by a human, break it down into its component parts, and then be able to make each one of those parts something that a model or a, you know, an automation or really any kind of machine learning process can take care of. So, so Jeff Bezos, I think in the early days of, of Amazon had this idea of you know, making sure that every single piece of software you write is open to other teams to leverage. Mm -hmm. um, and um, kind of in that way opened up 
the, the ability for Amazon to, to build up the AWS business, um, which is now, you know, whatever, um, hundreds or if not a trillion Huge. dollar business. Yeah. Um, you're curious how you think about managing these dependencies, right? Because the quality of your results ultimately depends on the data that's coming in. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes you don't, if you were an internal body, uh, internal software engineer, you could maybe influence that other team that of data that's coming in on how they structure the data, how they write the API. Like curious how you think about working or, or, or resolving issues related to um, improving the quality of data. Because I think that's the biggest barrier to organizations adopting AI. It's actually the quality of data and the way they structure the data beforehand uh, and working with legacy systems in order to do so. Yeah, I mean, so like I'll I'll be honest, like you know, we have a, a point of view, and it's that a lot of those are going to involve you know large human workforces in order to be able to do that. Now, we also you know lean into the overall kind of data and schema design. So every one of our processes has associated sort of schemas uh, that then you know do type checking, and we have the ability to then you know if if data is coming in and is not ma matching an expectation overall, then we can work that into. Um, into our process where you know there might then sort of be a branch that goes off for uh, handling a particular exception in terms of the data but um, you know each process is going to be a little bit different you know so again that's why it's really important to understand what's kind of going on I don't think that there's a silver bullet for hey all data problems is there you know some way that we can filter I think that it's um, you know uh, creating assertions around what you expect to be there and then sort of having you know exception handling around that and whether that's like exception handling at the code level or exception handling at sort of the process design level um, you know, you have to think about not just the happy path, but kind of the sad path whenever something doesn't go as expected. And the, the more that you can anchor around your data types or the distribution of that data or sort of your, your expectation there, as well as provide um, monitoring and observability around, you know, the data that's flowing through the system. Um, I, I think all of those are different techniques that you can uh, kind of undergo in order to try to make sure that the data coming in matches your expectations. Then on the, the you know, flip side kind of coming out, um, you know, we use a a combination of different kind of quality assurance um, tools, whether that's us, uh, again, sort of checking data types and distributions of things that are coming out of our processes, or if we do sort of sampled quality assurance of data that's coming out um, in, in order to make sure that it meets, you know, the expectations of our clients before we deliver it back to them. Mm, yeah, I mean, really, you can you can only control what's in your control. And so right. you're know, doing the these measures, like doing quality assurance on the, on the output, um, kind of Send sort of type checking on, on the input. I think is really um, you know the best way to, to manage the the quality of data that's coming in and out off of the data. I, I almost think like invisible is almost like a kind of a, a, a black box within the workflow. So you, you maybe a company kind of has their own workflow and you kind of piece in this piece of software um, you know, through that that workflow. I mean, curious are there philosophies on how invisible should work within the entire tech stack? Um, are there opinions or it's more of a case-by-case -case basis where it's really whatever their philosophies are, you kind of, in, that influences the way you'll design a system, um, yeah, for the client? Yeah, I mean, so like, uh, we, we definitely, we try to make sure, like I said, you know, that the, the KPIs of our customers kind of line up. We want to make sure that our incentives are aligned well so that we can be a good partner with them. Um, we've had, you know, several different kinds of engagements. So in some cases, um, you know, whenever we uh, we work with a lot of on-demand delivery companies, uh, and so what that looks like, you know, encoding their menus and understanding all of the restaurants and pricing information that might be associated with that. And so for for any one of those, you know, we want to sit down and understand, you know, 
where is this data going to go in your system? What are the KPIs that you know you and your team are trying to drive towards? And how can we design a, a process that you know is going to be cost effective for you and is also then going to uh, be able to, to solve your problem? In other cases, like we also do a lot of work with companies that are building foundational models. So like we provide a lot of the human data uh, behind some of the, the largest large language models. And so in those cases, we'll sit down with researchers uh, and say, you know, what data is it that you need? Um, you know, what what are you trying to do with this model? And then we'll design our RLHF or, or supervised fine tuning kind of process with them and run that as a process. And most of the time, those those processes aren't using any models. Those are entirely human. Um, but I, again, I think that a lot of it is for us just very consultative in terms of trying to understand, you know, the, the problem there. But we, we work with, in some cases, research teams, in other cases, operations teams, um, and, and in other cases, engineering or product teams. And so it really just kind of depends on uh, the client that we're working with. Got it, got it. Um, so maybe uh, going back to this case here of, of the retailer, um, like how did this instance impact your approach to integrating AI in, in future projects? Were there kind of key key lessons in, that you learned through the, throughout the way? Yeah, I mean, so um, it was definitely uh, for us, like we had to, to up our game in terms of there was a ton of scale in terms of the, the number of uh, requests that we were making. You know, at, at that point, I think we hit plenty of API limits and so better better understanding like how many tokens uh, we're running through the system and being able to you know handle sort of parallel processing of you know a really large number of, of products um, so that that was one piece and then also um, you know our, our team I think came up with some pretty uh, interesting ways to compare uh, a, a lot of times we were doing both a, a human kind of driven workflow as well as an AI driven workflow and so um, we ended up um, taking the outputs from both of them and uh, turning them into embeddings and then comparing the distance in between them in order to kind of understand like how far away was the human answer from the, the model driven answer. Uh, and then that allowed us to kind of build confidence um, across different categories or different data sources so that that way we could understand, you know, red, yellow, or green across, you know, different kind of sections of that data set to understand is this something that needs to go to you know, our human workforce or is this something that the model can fully take care of as well as helped us to then investigate. Um, we also, we ran, you know, a lot of A-B tests across different prompts and sort of different amounts of context. Uh, and it's kind of an optimization problem within that because if you're, you know, feeding a lot of context and you're going to pay more for tokens. And so it's also sort of a, a cost benefit analysis of understanding, you know, what's the cost of having a human completely do this? What's the cost of like feeding in a ton of context all at once in terms of the accuracy of the answer that comes out? And then, you know, what might be, you know, other uh, other variations of this prompt that might include less context, but that might be cheaper in order to get the answer. And so like thinking about those trade-offs across, um, across the problem, I think, you know, taught us a lot about then how we, you know, go about optimizing and figuring out the the exact fit of where where models make sense in order to solve data problems. Mm. Um, you mentioned scale uh, at the first part. This is a common question that, that we get a lot um, in that, sure, the LM may be able to service maybe a couple hundred people, and that's great. But for a lot of large organizations, you know, if they can't, if the LM can't, serve you know tens of thousands hundreds of thousands millions of people then it's not even worth the the investment because they may want to build those capabilities in-house hire machine learning researchers and engineers data scientists data engineers so um you're curious this this problem of scale is actually a huge inhibitor to the deployment of ai uh, in real companies so how you you mentioned you know, parallel compute can you give a little more more con detail on the algorithms, the techniques, the the libraries, how do we how, how do you address this issue? 
Yeah, I mean, so we, we used uh, Helicone in order to um, measure and kind of understand the number of tokens that uh, that we were using, as well as to keep an eye, an eye on cost. And then, I mean, just, you know, sort of traditional, you know, just notebooks and pandas to kind of understand, you know, like what is the, the cost going to be and make sure that, you know, as we're doing this, that it's something that's still going to be uh, economically viable for us in order to solve uh, our our. Uh, customers' problem, uh, and then from there, I mean, we also like we're you know big users of of Langchain as well as a part of that, and then also all of this is sort of um, we're implementing different steps in that larger kind of process orchestration engine that we have internally, and so we think about that, and there's built-in parallelism uh, in the the event execution of our internal tooling, and so that help that gets us really far in terms of being able to handle parallelism. Um, we ended up having to make implement some things around rate limiting um, for that. Uh, so you know, like you still you still hit caps in some cases where it's like we can you know we can do uh, inference in parallel, but then you know when we're working with a commercial vendor that has a, a global rate limit, you also kind of run into that. And so there were some cases where we were even having to sort of uh, dial down how quickly we were processing all of these different products because it was in, in the scale of millions. Uh, and so you know having to make sure that we. Uh, also, in some cases, even had enough time to be able to process data at that volume um, was was an interesting uh, challenge for us. If you're processing at such a scale, you have a lot of training data. Mm -hmm. um, you may have a lot of compute resources. Why not um, take a open source model, fine tune the model, maybe improve performance using a pipeline of different language models? Like why why commit to using an API still? Um, is there a philosophy on you know when you should use this, some of these APIs versus just do the fine tuning of a model in house and and keep that proprietary a proprietary model um, that you can build upon as you have more customer data and, and you can create a flywheel. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's something that we're certainly uh, exploring more now. Um, so, I mean, at that uh, at the point in time that we were working on this project, that was the the way that we approached it. But we're certainly seeing also that cost benefit trade off in terms of if we fine tune a model, then there's also ways that you can do it much more cheaply. And so, thinking about does it make more sense to the front and then you know get faster and faster and cheaper inference, uh, or does it make sense to sort of do more of a prompt engineering, and I see those as you know two sides of the the same coin. Like you can add a ton of context, you can do sort of like the the retrieval augmented generation kind of approach to uh, solving a problem, or you can fine tune the model and then you know a, a lot of times get better results. And so um, you know, and we didn't in this case, but I think that that's definitely that's not because we're philosophically opposed to it, and we're, we're seeing the, that kind of approach uh, now as we you know uh, jump into other client engagements. Mm, yeah. Um... I'm curious, what type of um, performance in terms of accuracy did you demand? So, when I was a machine learning engineer for for a healthcare company, like that level, and, you, and let's say you're doing um, a screening process or diagnosis process, you uh, sometimes want to err on the side of saying this person has a disease because then they can be filtered and go to a real doctor to get checked up. Whereas, you know, on a more consumer-facing app. Uh, you know, accuracy and performance doesn't matter as much because it's not a sort of singular objective function. What type of you know accuracy or you know, how how stringent your requirements were um, in this case? Like, how did that influence how you built the system? Because the reason I'm asking is because if you're you're less if if you need really high accuracy, then you might want to use an API. Um, whereas if you're not as tolerant, like with our uh, work at Stanford. You can piece together a data pipeline where you improve the retrieval, the, the prompts using language model, uh, and you use a retrieval model, um, and you use a fine tune model, and our tool can can allow you to create a really great 
pipeline that may not perform just as well as the API, but you can be scrappy and create your data pipelines in such a way that um, you know you can lower your cost. You may not have as much accuracy, but that might be great for a lot of startups. So, so curious, like, what was your kind of threshold there for performance? Yeah, I would say that this one was, it was a, a, a retail consumer problem space, and so sort of had the, the kinds of you know guardrails that you would expect for that kind of problem domain. So I think that certainly, like if we were doing something in the the life sciences or whenever we work with our healthcare clients, um, you know, the bar is is a lot different, and you know there are then you know more checks and sort of you know more expense on a per unit basis. And so like I definitely think you're you're calling the the right question, which is like how accurate does this need to be, and then what are the protections that I'm going to put in place in order to make sure that it's right. Um, in in this case, you know, um, certainly it's. Really Really important, you know, economically for one of our clients in order to make sure that the data is as accurate as it possibly can be. But it's, you know, not necessarily the same bar that you might have for a healthcare kind of use case. Yeah, and I think um, the more we go into this this realm, and more, the more AI is, is deployed, people are going to realize that um, you just make it as accurate as possible will not be um, the the question that you'll optimize for all the time, um, yep. particularly because of the discrepancy between the open source community and the closed source community. Um, people, I think, are going to do the financial math on, do I really need that super accurate model if it's going to cost me you know, 10x? Sometimes 10x is much. Um, uh, so, so really interesting to, to get your thoughts there. So moving on, um, you know, someone who's sort of deeply involved in the creation and support of tech solutions, Like, how do you balance sort of cutting edge innovation with the ethical considerations of so data privacy and security. And the reason why I ask is because you know, when I talk to my engineering friends, the biggest thing on people's mind is how do we train uh, more efficiency, uh, more efficiently, right? How do we train where it doesn't cost people like a billion dollars uh, to, to train a model? Um, and when I ask my friends who are non-technical, it's data privacy. That's the only thing I ever hear about. Um, and you're curious to get your thoughts on how you think about data privacy and then conveying that to the customer because Oftentimes, you're conveying those concepts to a customer who's non-technical and just wants to be assured that you're you're you know, handling their data in, in the appropriate manner. Yeah, I mean, so we're uh, we start that with a, a framework of you know traditional kind of security uh, oversight. So we're SOC two, Type two, and HIPAA compliant in terms of just like data at rest, and then from there. Um, you know, we lay out again because we work with clients in different industries and that have sort of different problem spaces. Like we want to make sure that we're agreeing to them exactly how we're going to use their data, as well as that we, you know, know where it's coming from and that we're able to then make sure that we're still in compliance and we're following, you know, both our legal as well as our ethical, um, you know, requirements for, um, you know, any any of the data that we're processing. Um, we don't hold on to uh, client data, you know, that that passes through our system. So like we're not. Um, you know, if, if we pr produce a data set or we solve a, a, a business problem for one of our clients, we're not, you know, using that to train our own data. And so by, by default, um, you know, their data is their data. Uh, and so that, you know, takes care of a lot of sort of the data privacy related concerns because we're not sharing it in between clients. We're sort of pretty tightly compartmentalizing that um, and by, by having that partition and we don't run into that that kind of space as much. Now we have run, we have talked to clients in regulated industries uh, or financial services industries where they don't want to use open AI or they don't want to use, you know, a, a kind of commercially available hosted model. And, and in those cases, you know, like we might then run Llama 2 or one of the sort of uh, open source models within our infrastructure in order to make sure that their data is not passing to any third party. Um, but a lot of times, again, when we sit down and design a process with them, we also walk them through like, hey, this is the data and this is where it's going to pass through. And we make sure that that's going to meet whatever their requirements are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, 
so then let's say you've set up the system that's that's you know complies with, with a lot of these kind of data privacy principles um you you put that out into deployment like how do you approach continuous improvement and refinement of ai in a production environment and what strategies do you suggest for handling model updates and retraining um and you, this comes from like a personal pain point for me which is it was working we we once had this the ML deployment was built integrated to software engineering, and so we couldn't to sort of A/B test model endpoints, um, do live training so that the model updates with real-time uh, customer data. Um, but even if you get those systems set up, it's it's very hard to manage and do monitoring on that. Like, curious, like how you think about the right approach to improving in real time from customer experience, yeah. but at the same time, like being very careful that you can control the performance of that. Yeah, I mean, so uh, up until this point, we haven't uh, done real-time or close to real-time uh, fine-tuning or sort of retraining. A lot of times we're doing that more in batch at like a you know daily or weekly kind of level. And so um, with that said, I mean, uh, because we are sort of sitting on top of a, a directed graph, um, you know, we can redesign processes in order to make sense and kind of solve, solve, uh, solve problems there. I think that... Um, Again, individual clients are going to have KPIs around like what does data quality need to look like for them, and uh, you know we've you know used various different systems, whether that's you know Datadog or some of the other commercially available kind of like observability and monitoring tools for metrics for anything that's passing through a model to understand you know it, uh, how it's performing, uh, and then that can sort of be a leading indicator for hey this is this falling off or needs to be retrained um, or otherwise needs to be improved needs some other sort of level of oversight. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so that's really interesting. And, and I think the key kind of takeaway from that experience is how do you both design a system that's efficient and effective that can also be communicated to the customer you're working with? And I think that's um, going to be a key issue or, or sort of key challenge for, for a lot of people listening to this uh, moving forward because you know, I think no one asks, you know, what, how does Salesforce look like under the hood? Like people just use yeah. Salesforce, they kind of click through. I think oftentimes with AI solutions, people are more curious, like, what are you doing with my data? How are you doing kind of the inference part of this pipeline? Um, so kind of shifting gears now to your experience. So we talked about Invisible, yeah. kind of the problems you worked on. Like curious, like what advice do you have for teams who are just starting their journey for enterprise use cases? Because you, um, you know, you've, you've been a part of sort of starting companies. Like curious to hear about how those roles were different from now, you know, you may be deploying to sort of millions of, of, of customers, or how do you think about that the shift in, in your roles? Yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, certainly, uh, you know, big company problems, a lot of times, like they're gonna have either, you know, compliance standards or sort of overall, like the, the procurement process is gonna be a lot longer. Um, I think, you know, you, you really have to make sure that you have a, uh, an understanding of, you know, what are their pain points? How do they think about, you know, their buying process, the, the overall kind of, um, customer success journey and making sure that, you know, not only are you working through the the way that they think about buying things and making sure that you check all of the boxes there, um, you know, it's, it gets, gets more complicated in, in that way. Um, but also, you know, that you continue to have internal champions um, that, you know, continue to in, use your services and, uh, and, and that that's an opportunity for expansion uh, in terms of, uh, continued growth and continued kind of usage like you know, that we've run into situations before where you know you're working with one team within a larger enterprise and then somebody moves on and are you still connected uh you know to the to the larger company and so i think that that um 
kind of understanding their org chart internally and understanding like how they think about buying something and how the the thing that you're building is going to fit into this much larger machine. I think it's a little bit easier whenever I've uh, sold solutions into other startups because you're like, oh yeah, I know the CEO. Um, you know, whenever you're, you know, one branch in a, a huge structure, I think it's it's a lot more complicated to kind of understand what's happening on your counterparty side. Right, right. Um, in, yeah, I think one of the, the key issues is that when you're a startup, you may not know um, how the the larger enterprise is just a function different from the way you are, right? It, it requires a little bit of empathy uh, and that there's a lot of, you know, counterparties there's a lot of agreements that they reach between the two, between the different parties. You have product, you have engineering, you have security teams, um, and so having empathy for that is, I think, will be very important for any you know, people listening to this that are you know, building a startup um, in AI. Um, you know, given your your background in traditional software engineering groups and now moving to machine learning and AI, there's a lot of people trying to make that transition. I think there's a lot of things to carry over, and there's a lot of things that are different. Um, you know. Distributed systems and designing systems will always be integral to every single um, so software-related system. But curious to, to hear how your strategies and your leadership strategies have changed moving from you know, both worlds. Yeah, I mean, so like I think that definitely like the people skills are transferable. Like within all of these organizations, like they're made up of individuals, and those individuals, you know, you're going to have career goals. And so I think that a lot of the aspects that go into leadership in terms of you know how do you take a big problem, break it into pieces, make it understandable, communicate that to the broader organizations. Definitely, you know. Leadership and, and management skills, I think, are a pretty evergreen thing, you know, regardless of like whatever the latest in technology is. I also think that, you know, a lot of the processes um, around sort of just traditional software development lifecycle of kind of understanding, like, how do we do discovery with a client? Uh, how do we identify what the problems are going to be? How do we prioritize things and sort of some of the even product management kind of skill sets? Um, you know, are, are really valuable, um, you know, you, instead of writing, you know, code that might be deterministic, you know, now we're sort of dealing with models and it's, you know, much more of a, um, you know, probabilistic kind of uh, outcome. And so I, I do think that um, that lack of determinism, I think, becomes, uh, you know, a, a, an interesting challenge if you're used to, you know, every time that I run the script, I get the exact same output. And now all of a sudden I'm talking in, in terms of statistics instead of, um, you know, the something that's more definitive. I think that that definitely is is different. I mean, also, um, you know, I, I studied computer science myself, and so like I, I deal now with a lot more people that have PhDs in math, and so I think that there's definitely a, a steep mm -hmm. learning curve whenever you know you computer science. You know, it's definitely a transferable skill and something that you can grow into. But certainly, um, you know, I, I think that they're working with anybody that's an expert in something more deeply than you might be as a leader. I think is a, is an, an interesting challenge the first time that you do it. Of uh, you know. I, understanding how to set up a project plan with somebody, uh, how, how to work through problem solving in a, in a case where somebody else is a deeper expert in a field than you are. Uh, I think, you know, requires humility as well as, you know, like a, a curiosity in terms of continuing to learn and continue to kind of expand your understanding. As you think about, you mentioned those interpersonal skills, is there kind of a rubric, let's say like three things that people who are looking to move into an engineering leadership role in an AI organization um, are there kind of three things you think about um, as your kind of guiding principles for how to be a great uh, engineering leader or, or manager? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if there are three, but I'll, I'll do my best. So, um, 
You know, I, I think one thing that I always ask people whenever they're thinking about moving from sort of individual contributor work into management is, do you really want to be a manager? Or do you just want a promotion? Um, so, I mean, I think like, first of all, you want to make sure that you're doing something for the right reasons. Like, I think a lot of times, like management's just a different job. It's not actually a promotion. Um, it's and so I think that like being coming into that with eyes open for people that are are transitioning, you know, from you know doing individual contributor work, like really making sure that. Um, that you're you're making that change for the for the right reason. Um, I think um, one of the things overall, just clarity and communication. I think like uh, a lot of times, my job is to continue to to listen across the teams and then make sure that, especially in a remote environment, that everything that I hear is sort of being put in a structured format that can then be transferred out to people and and I and not taking for granted uh, that everybody has context. So like I think a lot of times that. My role is kind of megaphone of the organization. So um, being able to you know, re repeat uh, the, the joke that I always tell my team is like at the point in time that everybody tells me that they've heard this already, then I'm, I've started to break through in terms of making sure. That, so I think that a lot of, uh, especially people that are experts in a particular field, they assume that people understand them when they don't. Um, and they assume that people know what's going on when they don't. And so I think that sometimes, uh, you know, it's a, it's a transition in terms of both, you know, uh, making sure that you're really, solid at communicating communicating to people that you're communicating across all the different channels that somebody you know might take in and and i think that um a lot of first-time managers that i work with they are used to sort of thinking like oh well i've said this once and everybody understands it now and so in instead sort of like thinking um uh, my boss actually talks a lot about like what's your stump speech like there's something that you know like you're gonna you're gonna continue to sort of uh re-communicate that message over and over again and giving something giving a team uh, kind of a vision that they can rally behind. It feels really repetitive for people, I think, that are coming from, uh, you know, non-background, non-management backgrounds or non-leadership backgrounds. Uh, it feels like something that you're repeating yourself a lot. Um, and you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna whiff on the third one. I think I don't, I don't know if I ha if I have a third a third rubric for you today. You know, so um, the idea of being an evangelizer, I think, I think there's a Jeff Bezos quote uh, saying that like his his purpose in the organization is to to repeatedly. Uh, you know, um, evangelize for Amazon's you know, core mission as being a low cost provider, et cetera, et cetera. Like the, mm -hmm. the point is that um, why do people prefer sort of founder led or uh, or there's been a shift in recent years, probably the past 10 years in the, in the technology ecosystem. Why people love founder led organizations um, and or at least a founder is kind of a part of that uh, and being a key voice is, I think, because they, they have a they have that passion and, and joy of the. the of what the organization was at its birth, and they can kind of keep reiterating that. I think that also applies for all aspects of leadership, um, and that actually has a tremendous amount of value. Um, but you know, you, you mentioned you know working with with PhDs in mathematics, um, and there's been a really big discussion recently. Like, do you really need those core machine learning algorithm skill sets anymore? If you can just you know hop on on Hugging Face or use LangChain, like, what is your perspective on you? Know, a lot of young computer scientists these days. Like, what should they focus on in the ecosystem? Uh, should they, you know, say probability, statistics, multivariable calculus, linear algebra, and then study machine learning, and then then you know learn hugging face, or uh, maybe there's some other route that you you imagine. I mean, I think it depends a lot on what somebody wants to do, and there's there's a lot of value creation across, um, you know, that entire spectrum. Um, I mean, I think that. There are going to be a lot of places where AI problems are actually going to be UI and UX problems, and design skills are going to be really important. I think that there are going to be other places where, um, you know, if you have a deep understanding and empathy for what your end user needs, then you know, product management skills are going to be really important. I think in the sort of applied space, there's going to be a huge opportunity for people that have 
uh, a background in computer science and kind of the fundamentals of software engineering to be able to build systems um, where they're going to be able to be practitioners of models that they might not have, uh, you know, a complete understanding. But like, that's not new. Like uh, people, people use Linux every day that have never written a kernel themselves. And so I think that there, there's, you know, going to be uh, a huge opportunity for people to then be able to find value creation in places um, where they might not, you know, have a a really deep research background in terms of the ability to create these models. And then I also, you know, I, I see more and more content that's popping up that's specific to, um, you know, being able to better understand uh, models and, and their capabilities. And so I think that there are also going to be non-traditional paths uh, for people that maybe don't have a, a PhD in a, a STEM discipline to be able to, if they're interested and motivated, to be able to understand and continue to, to grow that skill set. Uh, I'm not advocating for how somebody should approach education, but I, I don't think that should be a blocker for anybody that finds it interesting and that is passionate about it. Exactly. I mean, I think the key is, let's say you were in the kind of, what, 1970s, um, or, you know, cl close to the dawn of the personal computer, like you didn't need to know exactly how Wozniak improved the personal computer to know maybe how to create a compiler or how to create your, the basic uh, initial um, business applications on the personal computer. So um, I think the same will go for, you know, in the AI realm, there'll be people who are very great at optimizing AI systems just the way at Wozniak was great at optimizing um, you know, the motherboard or, or any other sort of components of, of, a, of a PC. Um, but um, you know, interesting uh, to, to, want to kind of dive more into, um, you know, the one piece of advice you have, you know, now we've kind of talked about computer scientists, maybe moving to, to entrepreneurs, because as you have been on this entrepreneurial journey yourself, like who, what advice do you have to those people and especially harnessing AI uh, for, for those means? Like a lot of people are, thinking about AI in that it benefits a lot of incumbents. So, yeah. you know, maybe moving, you know, Oracle was really on-premise and uh, and developed some sort of customer relationship management software, but then Salesforce really disrupted with fully committing to the cloud model. Um, and there's all these you know, other methods, other cases you can see where, uh, you know, in the, in the personal computer uh, industry, you saw this as well. In the semiconductor industry, you saw this as well, where startups have some fundamental advantage over incumbents which we may not see as clearly uh, in the AI realm. Maybe you could talk to how people should think about starting their business in the, in the AI uh, space. Yeah, I mean, I, I think overall, um, certainly the, uh, the better that you kind of understand incumbents and where their weaknesses might be, I think that, you know, that, that to your point about sort of the Oracle and Salesforce example, like there are going to be some places where um, companies that have access to a lot of data or have access to, you know, armies of research teams, they're going to be things that, that they go after and that they have, you know, structural advantages to be able to tackle. Uh, and so I, I think that thinking about, you know, maybe a contrarian point of view around things that they're going to be less good at sort of allows you to compete in a place where, you know, they're not going to have kind of built-in advantages. Um, so I, I think that, that that certainly helps. I mean, I also, um, I think a, a failure mode of like, this is a, an AI company, uh, I think like, you know, most companies, they solve problems for people, whether those people work at companies or whether those people are, you know, in the consumer space. And so I think continuing to understand like with the end user in mind, um, you know, like what is the value that's going to be created by this thing? Um, I, you know, I sort of see a failure mode and this was true, you know, prior to kind of the explosion in AI, like engineers solving problems that engineers think are cool. Um, you know, and I think that a lot of times like you, you need to really continue to develop an empathy for, you know, the people that are going to use your software and how they're going to use it uh, and, and what it's going to be good for. Um, and so uh, 
be a you know a solution to a problem, uh, not a solution in search of a problem. Right, and I think that's also why Silicon Valley is great at churning out infrastructure software companies, cybersecurity companies, um, because you can allow engineers to just say, hey, this this is great for me. This is something I would want, and I'm going to build for other people. And um, what I've seen, at least um, on the application side, it doesn't necessarily need to be in Silicon Valley because um, as long as you like, let's say a lot of there's a lot of great vertical software companies out there, like Aviva. Um, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of accounting software. Uh, that doesn't necessarily need to be in Silicon Valley because as long as you, or or for insurance business, you have Guidewire, you have uh, Duck yeah. Creek, and um, the reason why these businesses don't necessarily need to be in Silicon Valley is because the key insight is solving the customer's pain point. And if you can do yeah. that with AI or Web three or uh, cloud computing, whatever is underneath the hood, you know, the core problem doesn't change. It's it's all people's challenges in, in a better way. Um, so definitely agree with that point. And and I guess the key thing is. For a lot of people, it, it, is that they're in search for those key things that AI allows people to do that you can't do with software 2.0 or some other prior techniques in AI. And so, uh, I think that's what a lot of people are are in the hunt for. So, wrapping up, uh, final question uh, that we ask every time is, what is the industry, AI industry going to look like one year from now? Now, I know you can't answer this exactly, but it helps people the way what they work on, what companies they build. The way to design their software architecture, um, so it still is a critical question to at least have you know, some thesis around because it influences what you build right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that like we're seeing an explosion in terms of purpose-built models that are solving um, you know specific kind of business problems, uh, and so uh, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is. If you sort of think about all the categories of different professional services or different, um, you know, specific domains, I think they're going to be models that are good at all of them. Uh, and I think that that sort of, you know, right now, uh, LLMs, uh, you know, pre-trained on the internet and aligned on sort of general problem-solving skills. I think that the the next layer is then getting into solving every single domain, um, really in society. Um, and so I, I think that you're, you'll see, you know, continued growth, uh, whether that's, you know, I've seen plenty of startups in the legal space, I've seen, you know, obviously tons of them that are in healthcare, and I think that you're just going to see that across all of the industries. Um, and so it's going to be really interesting. People that have access to that data, um, or, you know, that are well positioned in terms of like software teams that might be building solutions for those, you know, I think that they're going to be really fascinating applications that solve more and more niche problems. And you sort of see things kind of start to take over the long tail of, of problem space, whereas, you know, we, we had a, a huge explosion in kind of general purpose uh, and now the you know fine-tuned or um, you know uh, more domain specific or subject matter specific uh, models I think are, are really going to take hold uh, over the next 12 months yeah I think also um, um, you know, OpenAI developed uh, ChatGPT and and the GPT models and so there is still room um, you know, if, if it, the incumbent would always win then you know ChatGPT would come from Google or Facebook who had sure. the best researchers, the best engineers. And so it's just gonna be, uh, as we kind of talk, talk through today, is, is finding those, those, those little slivers of opportunity uh, in AI. I think uh, hopefully uh, people will find that. So uh, with that, all right, everyone, thank you for listening. That's our interview with Adam from Invisible Technologies, Collective Nation. You know, as we wrap up another episode, I want to express my gratitude to you uh, and to Adam, our guest, and our curious and passionate listeners. Uh, today's discussion has once again illuminated the field of AI, offering us a real rare glimpse into someone who's really shaping the field. As always, we are building this podcast with the Gen AI Collective community, so please reach out with any feedback or suggestions. 
If you'd like to be a guest on the Collective Intelligence Community Podcast, please get in touch with us. Details for doing so will be in the show notes. If you enjoy the episode and would like to support the Collective Podcast, please leave a review or comment on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for being a part of this journey. Until next time, keep exploring, keep questioning.